Welcome to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam, right here on St. Michael Catholic Radio, 102.9 FM, Tulsa and Broken Arrow. Glad to have you here today. We have another great show for you. Joe Heschmeyer, uh, a seminarian for the Archdiocese of Kansas City and a fabulous blogger, uh, an apologist for the faith, is going to be on the show later today. He's going to be joining us from Rome. So this is our longest distance interview that we've done to date. Uh, And so we're going to be talking today about the spirit of docility. Uh, We're in this season of Lent and we're in the midst of examining ourselves and seeing our own weaknesses and our own fallenness. And that's one step in the journey as we get closer to giving ourselves in full submission to God. Uh, And so we're going to be reading the readings of the day and uh, both of scripture and of church history here in this first segment. We're going to be talking to Joe here a little bit later. And then I also want to give a reading from G.K. Chesterton, who's not exactly a father or a doctor of the church, but has some keen insight for us on this very topic. So as we get started today, let's open up the day in prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ has saved us from our sins. As his people, let us call out to him, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Lord Christ, we pray for your holy church. You gave yourself up to make it holy, washing it clean by water and the life-giving word. Renew it constantly and purify it by penance. Good Master, show young people the way you have chosen for each of them. May they walk in it and find fulfillment. In your compassion, you healed all forms of sickness. Bring hope to the sick and raise them up. Teach us to love and care for them. Make us mindful of the dignity you gave us in baptism. May we live for you at every moment. May the dead rise to glory in your peace. Grant us with them a share in your kingdom. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God of mercy, free your church from sin, and protect it from evil. Guide us, for we cannot be saved without you. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Today's first reading comes from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5. Naaman, the army commander of the king of Aram, was highly esteemed and respected by his master. For through him the Lord brought victory to Aram. But valiant as he was, the man was a leper, Now the Arameans had captured in a raid on the land of Israel a little girl who became the servant of Naaman's wife. If only my master would present himself to the prophet in Samaria, she said to her mistress, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went and told his lord just what the slave girl from the land of Israel had said. Go, said the king of Aram, I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman set out, taking along ten silver talents, six thousand gold pieces, and ten festal garments to the king of Israel. He brought the letter, which said, 
With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When he read the letter, the king of Israel tore his garments and exclaimed, Am I a god with a power over life and death, that this man should send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? Take note, you can see he is only looking for a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his garments, he sent word to the king, Why have you torn your garments? Let him come to me and find out that there is a prophet in Israel. Naaman came with horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. The prophet sent him the message, Go and wash seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will heal and you will be clean. But Naaman went away angry, saying, I thought he would surely come out and stand there to invoke the Lord his God, and would move his hand over the spot and thus cure the leprosy. Are not the rivers of Damascus, the Abana, and the Farpar better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be cleansed? With this he turned about in anger and left. But his servants came up and reasoned with him. My father, they said, if the prophet had told you to do something extraordinary, would you not have done it? All the more now, since he said to you, wash and be clean, should you do as he said? So Naaman went down and plunged into the Jordan seven times at the word of the man of God. His flesh became again like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. He returned with his whole retinue to the man of God. On his arrival, he stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. That reading again comes from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5. Today's responsorial psalm comes from Psalm 42. A thirst is my soul for the living God. When shall I go and behold the face of God? As the hind longs for the running waters, so my soul longs for you, O God. A thirst is my soul for the living God. When shall I go and behold the face of God? A thirst is my soul for God, the living God. When shall I go and behold the face of God? A thirst is my soul for the living God. When shall I go and behold the face of God? Send forth your light and your fidelity. They shall lead me on, and bring me to your holy mountain, to your dwelling place. A thirst is my soul for the living God. When shall I go and behold the face of God? Then I will go to the altar of God, the God of my gladness and joy. Then I will give you thanks upon the harp, O God, my God. A thirst is my soul for the living God. When shall I go and behold the face of God? Today's Gospel comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Jesus said to the people in the synagogue at Nazareth, Amen, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own native place. Indeed, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was closed for three and a half years and a severe famine spread over the entire land. It was to none of these that Elijah was sent, but only to a widow in Zarephath, in the land of Sidon. Again, there were many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet 
not one of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When the people in the synagogue heard this, they were filled with fury. They rose up and drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town had been built, to hurl him down headlong. But he passed through the midst of them and went away. That gospel comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Today's reading from church history comes from a homily by St. Basil the Great. This is a homily on humility. The wise man must not boast of his wisdom, nor the strong man of his strength, nor the rich man of his riches. What, then, is the right kind of boasting? What is the source of man's greatness? Scripture says, The man who boasts must boast of this, that he knows and understands that I am the Lord. Here is man's greatness. Here is man's glory and majesty to know in truth what is great, to hold fast to it, and to seek glory from the Lord of glory. The apostle tells us, The man who boasts must boast of the Lord. He has just said Christ was appointed by God to be our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, so that, as it is written, a man who boasts must boast in the Lord. Boasting of God is perfect and complete when we take no pride in our own righteousness, but acknowledge that we are utterly lacking in true righteousness and have been made righteous only by faith in Christ. Paul boasts of the fact that he holds his own righteousness in contempt and seeks the righteousness and faith that comes through Christ and is from God. He wants only to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and to have fellowship with his sufferings by taking on the likeness of his death in the hope that somehow he may arrive at the resurrection of the dead. Here we see all overweening pride laid low. Humanity, there is nothing left for you to boast of, for your boasting and hope lie in putting to death all that is your own and seeking the future life that is in Christ. Since we have its first fruits, we are already in its midst, living entirely in the grace and gift of God. It is God who is active within us, giving us both the will and the achievement in accordance with His good purpose. Through his Spirit, God also reveals his wisdom in the plan he has preordained for our glory. God gives power and strength in our labors. I have toiled harder than all the others, Paul says, but it is not I, but the grace of God which is with me. God rescues us from dangers beyond all human expectation. We felt within ourselves that we had received the sentence of death so that we might not trust ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. From so great a danger did he deliver us, and does deliver us. We hope in him, for he will deliver us again. That reading is from a homily on humility by St. Basil the Great. As I looked over these readings last week to to try and determine what we wanted to talk about today here in the season of Lent, uh, which is a time again of introspection, where we're looking for those things that we need to lay down uh, that hinder us, and also those those practices and disciplines we need to pick up that cause us to walk in righteousness. And these readings for today really hone in on the need for the spirit of docility. 
And think of docile. That's where we get the word docility from. Uh, And that's something that doesn't really get a lot of play here in our culture because we are self-made people. Uh, And if we, you know, we're accused of not thinking for ourselves if we allow other people to inform us, you know, something that's often been uh, levied against Catholics is the idea that we don't think for ourselves, we let the magisterium do that. And yet I think it's quite the reverse that the spirit of docility makes us think harder than we otherwise would. Uh, So today we're going to be talking about that. And I just want to read you out of the catechism, what the catechism says to us about that spirit of docility. And it says this, uh, this is beginning at paragraph 85. We're going to go through paragraph 87. It says, the task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the Church alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. This means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome. Yet this magisterium is not superior to the Word of God, but is its servant. It teaches only what has been handed on to it at the divine command and with the help of the Holy Spirit. It listens to this devoutly, guards it with dedication, and expounds it faithfully. All that it proposes for belief as being divinely revealed is drawn from this single deposit of faith. Mindful of Christ's words to his apostles, he who hears you hears me, the faithful receive with docility the teachings and directives that their pastors give them in different forms. So this is what the Catechism calls us to, is not to lay aside our rationality and not to just accept whatever they say without thinking, but rather to weigh their words a little bit more heavily than our own opinions, to realize that we are biased just like Naaman and sometimes need to humble ourselves to come into alignment with that which has been given to the apostles. Well, we've got a lot more to talk about today in regard to docility. We're going to do that with Joe Heschmeyer here in just a moment, coming to us from Rome. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam on St. Michael Catholic Radio, 102.9 FM, Tulsa, Broken Arrow. This is Father Joe Townsend from St. Benedict's in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, and you are listening to Outside the Walls on 102.9 St. Michael Catholic Radio. Thank you, Father Joe, and thank you for tuning in. As I told you before the break, we've got a very special interview today. We're, we're interviewing someone all the way from the Eternal City, from Rome. Uh, we have with us today uh, seminarian Joe Heschmeyer, uh, who is with the Archdiocese of Kansas City. He runs a, an apologetics blog called catholicdefense.blogspot.com. Uh, the title of that's Shameless Popery, which uh, I just think is a very uh, humorous, double entendre kind of a name. Uh and so we, we bring Joe into the studio here. One of the reasons that I really appreciate Joe and his blog is that it goes beyond the, uh, the kind of soundbite sound um, apologetics and really digs into uh, the more nuanced uh, points of the faith. And so, Joe, thank you for joining us from Rome. I know you've got quite a time change to be with us today. 
Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm glad we were able to make it work. So today we are talking about the spirit of docility. And just before the break, we read that passage from the catechism. And I'm, I'm just going to read the last paragraph. So we did the three-paragraph section on the magisterium. But we're going to read paragraph 87. Uh, Mindful of the words of Christ's words to his apostles. He who hears you hears me. The faithful receive with docility the teachings and directives that their pastors give them in different forms. So that's paragraph 87 from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, One of the things that is uh, very interesting to me about that is I I grew up in the Protestant Church. And so there's this idea there that you test the faith of others based on your own rationality. And so you decide what church you're going to be involved with based on whether or not it comes into line with your theology. Uh, And as I become a Catholic, it was turned on its head. And all of a sudden, I had to submit myself uh, fully to the magisterium of the church, not abdicating my rationality, but saying, okay, you know, maybe I shouldn't be the sole arbiter of what is and is not correct. Uh, And so you recently did a blog about this. Uh, Can all Christians uh, agree to a mere Christianity? So would you talk a little bit about the spirit of docility uh, in, in, how we're to order our faith and what it means for us uh, as Catholics and our relationships with other other Christians. Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, the first thing I'd say is that the paragraph of the catechism you quoted there is a, is a tough message. Um, I think we should admit that at the outset. It's, it's hard for us uh, as fallen humans, and it's hard for us, I think, in a particular way as Americans who are used to hearing that the the Vox Populi is always right, or whatever the individual wants, the customer is always right, etc. We've we've been told in in various ways that our opinion, by virtue of it being our opinion, uh, must be correct. And the church really pushes back against that notion and says that, look, you know, reason can get you pretty far, but we shouldn't forget that our reason is fallen, and that we're not necessarily the smartest or wisest people in the room. We're dealing with a church that even from just a, a purely human perspective, is 2,000 years old and has featured some of the greatest saints and most brilliant minds in all of history. Um, Burke, uh, the famous conservative political uh, philosopher in English history, talked about the role of tradition. Similarly, that if something is an established tradition, uh, for you to make a change, you'd have to conclude that you know better than those who came before you. Now, that may sometimes be the case, but to just always assume that whatever you want to do over and against those who came before you is better is a sign of arrogance. Mm-hmm. But this is all the more true in the case of the church when you're not dealing with just a 2,000-year-old human institution, but an institution that is actually divinely established. Because then you're not just saying that you're smarter than 2,000 years of saints. You're ultimately saying you're smarter than Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's where things start to go very haywire. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier the, the blog post in terms of mere Christianity. And this is, I think, one of the important areas for why this docility is so important. Most Catholics and most Protestants agree that something like mere Christianity is important, that we should be able to agree on all of the essential issues, and we should be free to hold our own opinions on the non-essential issues. We shouldn't bind someone to a belief that's unimportant. We shouldn't force them into a corner theologically on an issue that maybe isn't very well defined or it isn't uh, something central to the faith, etc. So this is, I think one of the appeals of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, is that it really spoke to that 
that common ground that we have and, and our desire to to build a Christianity that emphasizes the importance and doesn't emphasize the, the minutia in a way that's disproportionate to, to what it deserves. Mm-hmm. The problem with this attempt to establish a mere Christianity is that no two groups, indeed no two people, seem capable of determining which are and are not uh, the, the core issues, the essential issues. So you might in your mind have an idea of, well, here are the issues that are important. But if you really start talking with your neighbor about it, you might discover that their idea of what is or isn't important is different from your own. Uh, To give one example, there are a lot of evangelical groups who say that having a literal interpretation of the first six days of creation as 24-hour periods is vital, not just to being an evangelical, but being a Christian. Mm -hmm. And of course, on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who say this just isn't an issue we even need to be debating. We can have a variance of opinion. We can recognize the possibility that the language is metaphorical. As long as we understand the scripture to be God-breathed, then it doesn't matter if you take one particular interpretation over the other. There, the dispute isn't just over how we read the passage, but over what importance the passage has for us as Christians. And without a magisterium, without a teaching authority to serve as a final authority, two things start to happen. Number one, I start to treat my views as the only views that are acceptable, that my views are the orthodox one. And so if I disagree with all of Christian tradition, that just means they broke away from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's you know, the, the famous English joke that there is uh, fog in the channel and the continent was cut off. Meaning that it isn't that England was cut off from Europe, but Europe got cut off from England. Right. And we can take this this entire interpretation in our relationship with the church. But the second and related point is that not only do I view my interpretation as the correct one, but my priorities, those parts of scripture or those doctrines that are of particular interest to me, or the ones that I think I have a good understanding of, start to become more and more important to my view of Christianity. So then people who maybe just don't share my interest in those, I start to think of them as less good Christians. Yeah. You know, and we we have this need almost for a magisterium just to tell us what things are mere uh, so that we can then agree and then say, oh, well, here we go. And I have I have some friends that say, well, you know, the creed, the creed should be mere Christianity. And uh, my my response to that is, okay, well, if the creed is mere Christianity, then what shall we believe about the communion of the saints? Uh, and so now we have a different interpretation even of what those individual words mean. Uh, and so we now need a magisterium to help us interpret what does communion of the saints mean so that we can come to an agreement on this mere Christianity? Absolutely. This, uh, I think, gets to another related issue with it. Even if we could somehow all agree as to what a mere Christianity looked like. So, for example, we all say, well, as long as you agree with the Nicene Creed. Mm -hmm. Well, then you get to that troubling phrase, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Right. And all four of those adjectives need defining. And modern Protestantism doesn't understand the church to be one holy Catholic and apostolic in the way that the Christians of the fourth century did. So, you know, for example, if you look at the writings of St. Optatus of Milevus, he's very clear. He's writing in the fourth century explaining what this means. So the one church, he explains, can be identified by its union with the Pope in Rome. And this is specifically what he points to. He says this cathedra of St. Peter's is how we can tell what is and isn't the true church. And he even goes so far as to say, even if you were to set up another bishop in Rome, we would be able to know by the bishop who actually has St. Peter's Church. So 
he goes into this. Now, a person might logically say, no, the 4th century Christians were wrong. Mm-hmm. And my interpretation of one holy Catholic and apostolic is right. But that shows why even agreeing to the words of a creed doesn't necessarily mean anything. Uh, I think the history of uh, the divisions within Christianity speak abundantly and clearly to that. We, we all agree that the Bible is true, mm-hmm. but we don't all agree as to what the Bible means. Well, and to some extent, there is some disagreement within the Christian community of how the Bible is true. What does it mean that the Bible is true? What, is, what does it mean for the Bible to be inspired? Uh, is it literal uh, word for word, God whispered in their ears and we're to take it that way? Or is there uh, the senses of Scripture that we have in uh, from the church fathers, that there's the literal interpretation, but there's also the spiritual sense, and there's all of these different ways that, that we're to appropriate the Word of God? Yeah, absolutely. I think this, this really speaks to the, the problem of an ecclesiology and a theology that works with me just picking up the Bible and saying, what do I understand it to mean? Mm-hmm. Because even if I'm well-trained, even if I'm well-educated, you know, ex- experts disagree, uh, scholars disagree. And you just say, my interpretation is the final authority, it's the binding one, and no one uh, can serve as a check against that, is really dangerous. One of, uh, one of the things that happened later in the life of Martin Luther is he started to be plagued by this doubt. It was a nagging question. And the question was, are you alone just? Because what he'd done is indicted 1,500 years of Christianity for disagreeing with him. Right. And so this voice that he thought came from the devil, what we would say probably was um, a wronged conscience, was recognizing that this is a, a very uh, strong claim and, frankly, sort of an arrogant one to say that everyone before me is wrong and only I know what Christianity actually teaches. Certainly, if we step back and look at it that way and say 500 years from now, if some new group arose and said they had the true interpretation of Christianity, would they be right? And we would all say no. I mean, there's no way that we've gotten it all wrong, that everyone has gotten it all wrong so far. And yet, when we disagree with the church and put forward our own interpretation held only by doing Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, when we come back from the break, uh, let's talk a little bit about what happens not when our Christian brothers are on the wrong side of the magisterium, uh, not when people have changed church history to fit their own moods, but when we, who claim the Catholic faith and who are recipients of the sacraments and the graces of God, when we find ourselves on the wrong side of the magisterium and what that means for us. Uh, so I thank you. That uh, Again, our, our guest today is Joe Heschmeyer. He's a, uh, a former litigation attorney turned Catholic seminarian for the Archdiocese of Kansas City. Uh, he's currently studying in Rome at the North American College, and we are glad to have him uh, via Google Plus uh, Hangout. Uh, so you are listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam on St. Michael's Catholic Radio, 102.9 FM, Tulsa, Broken Arrow.
microphone? You're listening to Outside the Walls with our daddy on St. Michael Catholic Radio 102.9 FM. Thank you, kids, and thank you for joining us after the break here on Outside the Walls on St. Michael Catholic Radio. Our guest today is seminarian Joe Heschmeyer. He's one of our bloggers on stmichaelradio.com. He is the seminarian from Stump the Seminarian. So if you go to our website, www.stmichaelradio.com, right up there in the blog section, you'll, you'll find Stump the Seminarian. And if you have a question about the Catholic faith or some some burning question maybe someone has asked you and you didn't have an answer for, uh, this is your opportunity to get a good answer or to stump the seminarian. I don't know if we've decided if there's a prize if someone can actually stump you. Uh, we should. I should talk with... Uh, I'd be, I'd be looking into that. <laughs> I, I would be looking into that. We we got to find out if there's a if there's some some prize for a question you've never heard before. So today we are talking about the spirit of docility and of and receiving the teachings of the church uh, with humility. And our readings today we looked uh, both at Naaman, who was so certain in his own rightness that he couldn't imagine that the prophet wouldn't come out and treat him with some amount of, of pomp and respect. And so he was going to turn away from the possibility of being healed just by virtue of it not lining up with his expectations. We see also the people of Nazareth getting ready to throw Jesus over the cliff because he didn't meet with their expectations. They weren't ready to see him uh, even so much as a prophet, much less as the Son of God. And so I look at ourselves, and specifically me, who coming from the Protestant world, it took me 10 years of examining the Catholic faith before I was ready to say, she's right and I'm not. Uh, I need to, rather than waiting for the church to, to make a place for me, I need to submit myself and come under the church uh, and under uh, under her opinions. And that means that I have to wrestle with ideas that I'd never thought about before or things that I thought were uh, maybe politically liberal or, or something that wasn't, uh, you know, it was it was only politically liberal and therefore it couldn't be theologically orthodox, right? And so I had to look at those things that the church taught about the preferential treatment of the poor, about uh, the the opposition to the death penalty, which recently, uh, a miracle of miracles, we had the National Catholic Reporter and the National Catholic Register and America Magazine and uh, our Sunday Visitor all make a joint statement on this very topic. These are people who, if you were to put them in the room together, would probably have another inquisition. Uh, and here they release this joint statement, and we see the weight of the magisterium calling us to to wrestle more deeply with ideas that, that maybe we wouldn't hold otherwise, that we wouldn't even consider. And so rather than the church magisterium thinking for us and replacing our thought, we see the church magisterium actually calls us to think more deeply about things to get over our own undetermined biases. So what, what does someone do when they find themselves on the wrong side of the magisterium, as it were? Well, I think one of the first things is to recognize that God guides the church. This often gets overlooked or maybe we'll pay lip service to it, but we won't really stop and think about what that means. Um, St. Maximilian Kolbe actually had a, a beautiful quotation about this. It's in the Office of Radiance for his feast day. And it says, it is obedience and obedience alone that shows us God's will with certainty. 
Of course, our superiors may err, but it cannot happen that we, holding fast to our obedience, should be led into error by this. There's only one exception. If the superior commands something that would obviously involve breaking God's law, however slightly, in that case, the superior cannot be acting as a faithful interpreter of God's will. End quote. So he's got this great advice first. If we're not dealing with something where you're being ordered to do something immoral, and that's such a, a rare ca- class of cases, I don't think we need to, to consider that here. It may happen that your superior, whether it's the, the parish priest or your bishop or any other context, even outside of the, uh, the immediate religious one, so for example, a boss at work or if you're a child, your parents, may have an idea that you feel like you know better. And yet, what we hear here is that submitting anyway is a, a beautiful way of following God's will. That even if they're in the wrong in terms of not having the best idea, your obedience still gives glory to God. And if you keep that in mind, then it's no longer a question of, well, is his plan or my plan the better plan? It's, is God's plan for my life for me to be obedient or disobedient? And that's a much easier question to answer. The Holy Family is a model of this. So there's three members of the Holy Family, Joseph, Mary, Jesus. Joseph is the only sinful member of the family, (laughs) and yet he's the one that the other two submit to in their own ways. And Jesus submits to both both Joseph and Mary, and yet he's divine. So in in every case, we see this almost inverted hierarchy where the ones we would expect were the most qualified and most capable of leading aren't the ones who do lead because God wanted to show the beauty of that obedience, that this sort of docility is something that gives glory to him and is present throughout all of the life of Christ. Despite being omniscient and omnipotent, Jesus humbles himself and pours himself out. And if we're too proud to do the same because we think we know best, we're just not following him. Mm -hmm. I think of the story of King David when he's been anointed but not yet crowned. And King Saul is still the, the leader of the land. And so he has the opportunity a couple of times to dispatch with, uh, with the king, which would be something that would be kind of common in that era and that region. And yet what he does is says, uh, I will not harm the head of the Lord's, Lord's anointed. And so even though he's been anointed king, even though he has the authority given to him by God, he still submits to the king until such time as God removes him in the appropriate manner. And so here we see even a person who's been under sinful authority, and he doesn't allow that to lead him into sin, and yet he still humbles himself uh, and doesn't take that that rightful place that is his until such time as the time is correct, and God gives that to him. And I think that's exactly. something that we miss. When, when Jesus says to render unto Caesar, mm-hmm. you know, it's worth remembering that the Caesar at the time isn't a a just leader, and this is the same Roman government that will execute him, and which he knows will execute him. Mm-hmm. And yet he doesn't say, well, they're run by a bunch of jerks, or I don't like their politics, so we don't need to acknowledge what they have to say. And so that's true for secular authorities, all the more true for the authority of the church. Yes. So what's you're entering into, into the diocesan priesthood, uh, one of the vows that you make, in addition to to chastity uh, and to celibacy, is the vow to obedience to your bishop and to his successors. Uh, as I talked with some other priests that I know uh, from uh, one of my cousin being one of them, he said that the the vow to obedience is actually probably the harder vow. So tell yeah, me a little know, bit about that. 
And that was actually one of the things a priest mentioned to me when I was first discerning. He said, look, we, we promised uh, celibacy once, but we promise obedience twice, first at the diaphane ordination, mm-hmm. and then again at the priestly ordination, and that we promise it twice because it's twice as hard. That rationalize and in an abstract sense you can you can rationalize why obedience is good but in the concrete situations where you feel like you know what's best and, mm-hmm. and you want to go save the world on your own without having to listen to the directives of your bishop or uh, what the pope has to say or what the usccb has to say on something and you just kind of want to go it alone that's where it takes a real submission of the self and, and a real kenosis of just self-emptying and allowing christ to take over and uh, being voluntarily weak so that Christ can be strong. Yeah. Well, you know, I think of, let's go back to our, our favorite uh, topic of conversation. Let's go back to Martin Luther here for a moment. And here we have Martin Luther, who is is a professed priest. Uh, was he a priest or just a monk? Ways, but I believe he was actually a priest. Okay, so we have here a professed priest who's vowed obedience, and he decides that he knows better. Now, Looking back in history, we can say that there were some corrupt things going on in the hierarchy that that should have been corrected and that were corrected at the Council of Trent 30 years after the the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. But here what I see is a, a person who is so convinced of his own rightness, even in the face of opposition of leaders, that he decided he was going to do what he was going to do. And he caused schism rather than healing. He, sco- he caused separation rather than reformation. And even going back to the Old Testament, we see that when we try to usurp the role of God, when we try to take things into our own hands, we end up not with the child of promise, Isaac, but we end up with Ishmael. And when we create our own Ishmaels, when we try to figure out how we're going to bring about God's will rather than being willing participants uh, in God's plan, we end up creating conflict that lasts uh, not just in the short term, but generation upon generation upon generation. You know, there's a great example of this um, in the Old Testament when the Israelites are scouting out the, the promised land after the Exodus. And first, uh, they get there and they see the Amicalites, and so the scouts come back with all these stories about how they're strong, well-fortified cities, and the Amicalites are are a, a strong, powerful group. And these stories get built up and built up and built up until it's just an exaggerated uh, story about them being giants and the Israelites looking like crickets next to them. Mm-hmm. So first, they refuse to go into the promise, all but Caleb. Mm-hmm. And so they're punished for this. But then their response is to decide that they're going to go charge in anyway. And Moses warns them at the time that God is no longer willing them to go in. Right. But they ignore him a second time. And this time, they go in without being told they can, and then they lose badly. And so it's not even just the action, because we see two opposite actions. First, they refuse to go in, and then they insist on going in. Mm-hmm. But it was the same common spirit of knowing better than Moses, knowing better than God, that really plagues them in, in both cases, whether they let themselves be overcome with uh, kind of an arrogant zeal or, or out of cowardice. In both cases, it was a spirit of disobedience. We, uh, you know, there's a, a good quote about this in the Church Father, St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was a student of the Apostle John, is writing about 107 AD on his way to martyrdom. And so he writes, As therefore the Lord did nothing without the Father being united to him, neither by himself nor by the apostles, so neither do anything without the bishop and presbyters. 
And presbyters, of course, is the original word for what we now call priests. Mm-hmm. So even then, he's talking about the importance of acting with the church, thinking with the mind of the church, and being just Catholic in, in your whole orientation towards life. That if you live a life that's in communion with the bishop and with the priests, and you don't put yourself over and against them, that's what the earliest Christians have said. That is how you that's how you live the Catholic life. You know, Ignatius is the one who first refers to the church as a Catholic church. Mm-hmm. And this really marks the spirit of what it is to be a Catholic. Well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show today. That's all the time we have for today. But uh, you can find more of Joe's writings, uh, both at our own website uh, and at his own blog, uh, Shameless Popery. I've got those links on our show, social media website. You can find it at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. I'll also look, link to it on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at outside the walls. So thank you, Joe, for being a part of the show today. Thanks for having me on. When we come back, we're going to hear a brief passage on docility from G.K. Chesterton. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam on St. Michael Catholic Radio, 102.9 FM, Tulsa, Broken Arrow. Welcome back to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam on St. Michael Catholic Radio, 102.9 FM. Today, we're talking about the spirit of docility just got a little bit of time left so we're going to cram in what we can well today we had joe heschmeyer from the uh from the north american college in rome join us via video chat uh i might be able to get that video chat put up later we'll just see how that goes along uh but i just wanted you know we had a couple of little technical glitches here and there but ultimately think about technology we just now played on the radio a live interview from Rome. That's pretty cool. I mean, if you think about uh, just 10 years ago, or that kind of thing would have been really impossible for, for a small station like us to pull off. And yet here we are with the, the way that technology is today. We're able to share those ideas uh, together from across the ocean. Well, we're talking about the spirit of docility today, and there's a quote from G.K. Chesterton in his book, The Catholic Church and Conversion, which was published in 1926, uh, that I have found to be very, very helpful. And so we're going to go ahead and read that to you today. It's a fairly lengthy passage from the book, but uh, it's worth our time. And he says this, We do not really want a religion that is right where we are right. What we want is a religion that's right where we are wrong. In these current fashions, it's not really a question of the religion allowing us liberty, but, at the best, of the liberty allowing us a religion. These people merely take the modern mood, with much in it that is amiable, and much that is anarchical, and much that is merely dull and obvious, and then require any creed to be cut down to fit that mood. But the mood would exist even without the creed. They say they want a religion to be social, when they would be social without any religion. They say they want a religion to be practical, when they would be practical without any religion. They say they want a religion that's acceptable to science, when they would accept the science even if they did not accept the religion. They say they want a religion like this because they are like this already. They say they want it, when they mean that they could do without it. It's a very different matter when a religion, in the real sense of a binding thing, binds men to their morality when it is not identical with their mood. 
It is very different when some of the saints preached social reconciliation to fierce and raging factions who could hardly bear the sight of each other's faces. It was a very different thing when charity was preached to pagans who really did not believe in it, just as it is a very different thing now when chastity is preached to new pagans who do not believe in it. It is in those cases that we get the real grapple of religion. And it is in those cases that we get the peculiar and solitary triumph of the Catholic faith. It is not in merely being right when we are right, as in being cheerful or hopeful or humane. It is in having been right when we were wrong, and in the fact coming back upon us afterwards like a boomerang. One word that tells us what we do not know outweighs a thousand words that tell us what we do know. And the thing is all the more striking if we not only did not know it, but could not believe it. It may seem a paradox to say that the truth teaches us more by the words we reject than by the words we receive. That again is G.K. Chesterton from the book The Catholic Church and Conversion, published in 1926, And I have to say that that was very much my conversion story of really weighing the church and wrestling with what the church said because it was so very different than what I had grown up with. Of course, there's a great number of things in the faith that I shared in common and really didn't change, but those key teachings of the church uh, on on the death penalty, on contraception, on uh, chastity, on on all of these these things that are unpopular in this current day and age— uh, those are things that I really had to wrestle with. And, and once I came to the place where I acknowledged and recognized that the church was true and that I would have to, to submit my will to hers if ever we were going to be joined together, that was the point that my conversion was, was irrevocable. It was imminent. There was no turning back. It was the point of no return to realize that the church was teaching something true. And I... I was not the sole arbiter of truth anymore. Now there was an authority that I had to submit myself to. And like Naaman, I, I submitted to it. And I went down to the waters that maybe weren't the waters of my preference. And I washed. And I came out and I found in myself a wholeness that I had not found before. A completeness that I had never known. Uh, and a full communion with the Holy Catholic an apostolic church. Uh, This is the faith that we declare, and it's what we gain through the spirit of docility. You've been listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam on St. Michael Catholic Radio, 102.9 FM, Tulsa, and Broken Arrow. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace this week.